let me sketch for you a little bit about the book of James. Uh, who wrote it and when he wrote it, those things are, are important. There are only two candidates for, for author, James the apostle and James the half-brother of Jesus. James the apostle is not a great candidate because about 44 uh, AD, James the apostle is beheaded by Herod. It's in Acts chapter 12. And that's a little bit early for the book of James. Plus, the author of James does not claim apostleship. And they often do when the apostles write letters in our New Testament. So taking James off the table, that is James of Peter, James, and John, those three inner ring disciples, is not him. Who's the other very likely candidate? Well, it's James, the oldest half-brother of Jesus. Now right away, that, that points out something that's a, that's a minor rabbit worth chasing within this rabbit that I'm chasing. Mary and Joseph had a normal marriage relationship and she went on to have a bunch of other kids. They're mentioned in the Gospels. They're mentioned again in Acts chapter one. And that highlights something that you need to think about. Whenever a tradition elevates teaching outside of Scripture to place it on a level where it can correct Scripture, Scripture always loses. Our Catholic friends teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. Mary had a bunch of other children. She, did, she and Joseph had a perfectly normal marriage relationship after the birth of Jesus. Um, if you have a conversation with a Catholic friend about this, eventually it will come down to Luke's got it wrong because the church teaches that Mary was perpetually a virgin. Those of us who hold to the authority of Scripture must also hold to the sufficiency of Scripture. That the Word of God doesn't need church tradition to correct it. Okay? That's a... That's a, it's a Minor observation for James, but an important one because James wouldn't exist had Mary remained perpetually a virgin unless you're gonna say there were multiple virgin births and that takes your doctrine of Christ to a very weird place very quickly. James did not come to faith in Christ during the earthly ministry of Jesus. And that, that can be a puzzling thing because you think James, exposed as he was growing up to Jesus, would certainly have good reason to come to faith in Christ. Unless you grew up in the shadow of an overperforming older sibling. Yeah. I was the salutatorian of the West Nassau High School class of 79. My big brother Van was valedictorian of his class. Russell, what's wrong with you? Van's room was always neat. Van never violated curfew. Van was a plague to me with his obedient mom and dad pleasing compliance through the whole set of years. Now, Van and I are very close today. But my goodness, he was a pain in my backside growing up. And if he had been the savior of the world, and he isn't, <laughs> I'd be in trouble too because I'm not following him. But after the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrected Christ appeared to his younger half-brother James. And in that conversation, 
James came to faith in Christ. He shows up among the believers in Acts chapter one. And as the years go by, the first decade of the church, the church in Jerusalem is led by the apostles themselves, principally Simon Peter. But by the time you get to the end of Acts 11, you start getting references to the elders of the church at Jerusalem as its shepherding leaders. And increasingly, you get references to James as sort of the, the first among equals lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem. When Peter is sprung from prison in Acts 12, after the apostle James is beheaded, Peter goes to prison and when he gets out of prison, he says, send word to James and the brothers that I've been free. James and the brothers, a reference to James and the elder body of the church at Jerusalem. So by the time we get to 44 AD or so, James has emerged as a leader, perhaps the lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem, and according to Acts 12:1, the Jewish church in Jerusalem is being scattered by persecution. That sets up Pastor James to write a letter to the scattered Jewish Christians and gives us the date, approximate date, mid, mid AD 40s for the book of James. Almost certainly before AD 50, because in AD 50, the Jerusalem council speaks to some of the same issues that James is going to write about and James writes about them without mentioning the Jerusalem council where he was present. So that pretty well implies James was written before that council took place. If you wanna dive deeper than that, those videos that I shot and mailed out are still available online. So Pastor James, in what I believe to be the first New Testament book to be written, takes up his pen and writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no problem calling my big brother the one of whom I am a servant once I know who he is. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, to my scattered Jewish friends, brothers and sisters, greetings. And right out of the gate, he begins the first half of chapter one is given to the subject of trials. Why trials? <clears throat> There's a extreme variant of, of so-called Christianity, fairly prominent out in the marketplace of ideas here in 2021, um, a, a version of something that calls itself the gospel but its chief end and its chief message is to communicate that, that because of Christ, we can know that God wants you to have great health and a lot of money, sort of a health and wealth message. That is not the gospel. That is a gospel that ought to be anathematized by every believer. It is ironic to me that Jesus Christ died broke, and they wanna say his message is about you being completely healthy and having a bunch of money. So don't follow Jesus. His example's no good. Bizarre. But there's a lighter weight version of that that can sort of seep into the groundwater if we're not careful. And that is that, that whatever Jesus wants for you, he wants your peace and preferences largely unmessed with. He wants you to have a, a quite 
blessed and comfortable experience. In fact, I've even heard it said that you can know you're in God's will because you personally have feelings of peace. That's weird as well because Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, no one in the universe has ever been more completely centered in God's will than Jesus in the hours before the cross. Was he feeling perfect peace in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's bleeding through his pores. He's as stressed out as a human being can be, dead center in God's will. Don't use feelings of peace as your barometer to spot God's will. You use feelings of peace, what you're spotting is your path of least resistance. You can reliably find your path of least resistance by going, wow, I've got three choices. Which one do I feel most peaceful about? But that'll be a message for another day. God sends us trials and encourages us to ask why. Let's look at it. Roman numeral one, the purpose of trials. Count it all joy. He comes right out of the gate with a direction. Count it all joy. Reckon it to be a cause for joy. Determine to see your trial from the perspective of joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. All right, let me give you a definition for trials. I love words and definitions. I looked around for one. A lot of them were way too long and a lot of them were way too dictionary sounding. So I, I fiddled around, crafted, whittled, and this is what I've come up with as, as a working definition for trials. I think it's gonna be on the screen. It's not on the outline. So here you go. A trial is a significant disruption of our pattern of preference and peace. A significant disruption. Not, not just, I, I went to use the salt shaker and there was no salt left in it. But a significant disruption of our pattern. See, we live our lives seeking to build a pattern around ourselves where we're kind of getting our way in a kind of peaceful way. A pattern of preference and peace. And when something comes along and rocks that pretty hard, that's a trial, a significant disruption of our pattern of preference and peace. Count it all joy when that happens. Wow, really? Well, before I can do that reckoning, before I can count it the way I'm supposed to count it, there's something I need to understand, and it's in the next verse. I need to have a realization. For you know, there's something you can know. There's something you can know, and knowing this will help you see your trial in a way that can be a source of joy. Well, I'll come back to that in a minute. Gail and I have built three houses together. Now, I don't know anything about the skills it takes to build a house. I'm, I, am, I, am, I am capable of changing light bulbs. I have hung a ceiling fan or two. I've done some toilet repair, but most often have ended up paying somebody else to fix my repair as I've made the problem worse. In the immortal words of Clint Eastwood, a man ought to know his limitation. And the times we've built a house, I haven't, I haven't been able to carefully audit the progress and know that things are being done right because I'm clueless. But I do know this, and this is three times through the process. You, you have the big meeting and you fill out all the paperwork and you, 
You, you leave the big deposit check and sign a bunch of stuff and they start construction on your house. And you go out there the next day and it is still the unaltered sand pile that it was. I, nothing happened. You come back a couple of days later and still nothing happened. And you might decide to give it a breather for a few days and you come back yet a few days later and holy cow, they've put in the form, they poured the foundation and the whole first floor is framed in. Whoa! But in building three houses, you know what's funny? I never, or I won't say never, I very seldom caught anybody actually working on the house that I was building. I could see some stuff happening, but then there would be these periods of weeks where whatever was going on, I couldn't see it. You know, maybe the electrician was pulling wires and the plumber was making things fit together right, but in terms of dramatic progress that I could see, there'd be weeks. And so my question would be, is there any work going on here or not? And for a guy who doesn't know anything about building houses, who's watched his own house get built three times, it's frustrating when you go a week or two or five or seven and you can't tell whether there's any work going on or not. What does that have to do with rejoicing in trials? Grab this and hang on to it. Trials assure you that the construction site is active and work is going on. You are the construction site and his impressing more deeply upon you the maturity to reflect the image of God and the likeness of Christ. That's the work. And the trial is his construction process. And so the joy of knowing that he has not treated you apathetically, but is concerning himself with your growth is how you count it all joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He's up to that. And then, so let steadfastness, patience, endurance, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Among the various components of the image of Christ that he is seeking to develop in you is that characteristic of patient endurance steadfastness, and the only way to get that is the hard way. There is not an easy path to that. And so for his glory and for your good, he sends you significant disruption of your pattern of preference and peace. Now, if you know the why, and this verse has told you the why, you also know the who. Who would be motivated to have you growing more into the image of Christ? Is that something Satan is interested in? Not a bit. Ultimately, and that adverb ultimately is important. Ultimately, the living God is the author of your trial. You say, well, I think, I think Satan is giving me all kind of fits. He may be. But Satan does not have access to you without coming through the nail-scarred hand of Jesus. Period. So ultimately, the living God, Satan's not interested in putting you through stuff that's gonna make you more like Jesus. The living God will put you through things 
that may or may not come out the way you wish they would tactically, but strategically, he's making you more like Jesus. And that's the, the purpose of your trial. And it might be, as trials go, pretty lightweight. It might be that you go out to your car in the parking lot in a bit, and it's sitting down on the, down on the rim, and you have to deal with that hassle this afternoon. Okay. It may be a medical diagnosis coming this week that's going to tell you that you're entering a chapter of life you don't want to enter. Okay. Anywhere in between. It could be someone that you love going through some terribly deep water. His purpose is to build endurance and draw out the image of Christ for his glory and your good in all trials. That's the purpose of trials. But Roman numeral two, perspective. Perspective for my trial. See, you and I are, are stuck in the world of our five senses. We're stuck seeing what we see and feeling what we feel and experiencing what we experience from a very, very limited vantage point. The vantage point of our own awareness. And sometimes from the vantage point of our own awareness, all we get from our trial is pain and confusion. Lord, if you loved me, I wouldn't be going through this. Ever raised kids? Ever had to deal with a, with a child that you love saying to you, if you loved me, you wouldn't let that happen to me. If you loved me, you wouldn't punish me. If you loved me, you wouldn't limit me. If you loved me, you would buy me this or that. And you, just on the tiny baby step between a human kid and a human parent, you have enough wisdom to handle your child's accusation that you lack love in the near infinite giant step between you and the living God, he also can handle your accusation that he lacks love as he lets you go through stuff you would not have chosen for yourself. But you've gotta get up out of your human perspective and seek his divine perspective. Verse five does not change the subject. <clears throat> He's still talking about trials. He's talking about trials through this whole passage. So regarding trials, perspective for the trials, Roman two. Letter A, when wisdom fails. Remember, wisdom is my capacity to see my life as God sees it. To get up out of the Russell eye view and get into the God's eye view of what's going on in Russell's life because he's always gonna know more. He's always got it way more under control. He always sees further, loves harder, and understands more than I do. So in the middle of my trial, it's really, really helpful to seek, Lord, I get that this is you, but that doesn't mean I get it. When wisdom fails, letter A, verses five through eight, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in all his ways. 
Wow, if there's a set of verses in the New Testament that gets yanked out of context and walked around like a show pony, it's that set of verses. First off, let the context speak. What are you praying for if you're praying in faith, nothing doubting, in alignment with James 1? What are you praying for? The context does not leave this open. What are you praying for? Look at it. Wisdom, of course. Wait a minute, so I can't, I pray in faith, nothing doubting, that my new car will be in the driveway a week from Tuesday. No, 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 no. That's got nothing to do with praying in faith. Wisdom. What is it to pray in faith, nothing doubting? I'll tell you what it's not. It is not to seek to hold God to an outcome that you like. So you pray for the outcome that you want. You put a sticker on it that says, I'm praying by faith. Lord, I just pray by faith that my ingrown toenail will be gone tomorrow morning when I wake up. And then it's not. And I'm left, do I have defective faith or do I have a defective God? What you've got is a defective understanding. Sidebar, but important one. You are not, yeah, you are not exercising faith when you claim promises from God that he has not made in his word. The only venue for you to claim a promise of God by faith is if it's a promise he's actually made. And the place that he has made those promises is in his word. So you wanna claim by, we started a business and we claimed by faith that our business wouldn't fail and it went bankrupt anyway. We prayed and prayed, claiming by faith that grandma would live, and she died. What's wrong with our faith? Quite probably nothing. What's wrong is your understanding. But wait, we're not supposed to doubt. Yeah, but what are we not supposed to doubt? It's not saying that you don't doubt the outcome. Like he's, you remember the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown? When Linus slipped for a second and said, if the great pumpkin shows up, and then he realized what he'd said. And he said, wow, that, that lack of sincerity there for a moment might cause the great pumpkin to take a pass. I've got to be absolutely certain in all things that the great pumpkin's gonna show up or he might not. I don't know if Charles Schultz meant to teach bad theology, a, a good example of some bad theology, but he really did. When you pray without doubting, you're not praying about outcomes. You're praying about God's character. Lord, I pray to you from the middle of my trial that I admit to you I don't understand. And I admit to you I ain't loving it. But Lord, by faith, I know that it's not accidental. By faith, I know that you are not wasting my pain. I have no doubt of your love for me. I have no doubt of your passionate pursuit of your glory and your passionate pursuit of my good. And I know that I am not alone in my trial. I have no doubt, I do not waver. Lord, bring your glory out of my life. And if doing so hurts me for a short season, thank you that because of the cross of Christ, you've made it worth it. 
because you promised you would. That's a prayer of faith in a trial. Not a prayer that tries to box God in to an outcome you like. Note to self, when you stare into the light for the sake of an illustration, you inherit bright green spots that make it impossible to read notes for the <laughs> remainder of the sermon. This is gonna get good because I have no idea what this says now. <laughs> okay, it's coming back slowly. When wisdom fails, let her be when wealth fades. Wow, those three dots are going to be with me for a while. One of these days I'm gonna to decide to work to be smoother. I just but not today. When wealth fades, verses nine through 11 also do not change the subject because so many of our trials have to do with material wealth. In addition to our failed wisdom, he talks about our fading wealth in verses nine, 10, and 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will fade away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower, fails and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In short, what he's saying is this. Given that so many of our trials have to do with our relationship to material stuff, if your trial is about a shortage of resources, boast that you have been made a joint heir with Christ and that ultimately, you'll be fine. Even in the short term, he's promised to provide all our needs. We just have a hard time telling the difference between what a need is and what a need isn't. Right? Sometimes. By the way, if his word is true and if he has promised to provide all our needs, if there's something that you very much would like to have but he has not provided for it, what does that tell you? It's not a need. At least it takes the subjectivity out. <laughs> and if you've got a bunch of stuff, don't get cocky. Because just like the poor man can look forward to the sufficiency of Christ and his joint air position in Christ, the rich man can count on the fact that his wealth is gonna go to zero. One day, it's gone to a lot of funerals. And the net worth of every funeral I've ever, the net worth of the subject of every funeral that I've ever done is exactly zero. The estate might have it, the heirs might have it, but the guy in the box or the urn no longer has it. And your uh, confidence should be in something other than money in your trial. All right, finally, we talked about purposes and perspective. Let's talk about third perseverance in your trial. Here's the value. Here's the central behavior that should mark your interaction with your trial. It's what he's working on in you. It's that same steadfastness we talked about a few verses ago. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Obedience. Faithfulness, faith, trusting God for the next step. It's not fireworks. So often in the Christian life, it's not fireworks, it's faithfulness. It's not some 
big, spectacular response. It's a steady on reliance on God's word and God's spirit. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Christian, persevere through your trial and find that on the end of it, maybe there's an outcome you like and maybe there's not, but you'll be stronger. You'll be blessed by your trial, always, ultimately, and maybe even in the short term. You will be confident Look at what we've survived. And ultimately, you'll be rewarded. Crown of life is one of various crowns mentioned in the New Testament. Crown of life is always associated with the Christian persevering through times of difficulty. That's the path to the crown of life. And by the way, here it says it's for those who love him. I gather that that's all Christians. So if you get the crown of life by passing through difficult seasons and the crown of life is for all believers... It follows that all believers can look forward to difficult seasons. I'm glad God hasn't called me to be a salesman for the Christian faith. I think I would be not good at it. Here's the deal. The biggest problem you've got is a sin debt before a holy God. The biggest disruption of your preference and peace that's ever gonna come for you is hell. And if you're outside of Christ this morning, the trials in your life are a loving God reminding you that you're a broken person in a broken world and nobody gets out alive. And the, the, the difficulties you're having are the gentle hand of a loving God trying to herd you to himself. The, the worst enemy you've got is your self-confidence. And the most loving thing that God will do for you is hit you and hit you and hit you and hit you until that is broken and you cry out for the Savior that you so desperately need. If you're here outside of Christ this morning, every difficulty you're having or have had is something you ought to thank the Lord for as he is offering, seeking to drive you to himself. If you're a believer, You don't grow when it's easy. There's not an arena in life that you grow when it's easy. Resting isn't bad, but you don't grow by resting. You grow in the difficult times. You catch your breath in the rest seasons. He's growing you, and so he's sending you trials. Thank him for them.